I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Precision Farming Dealer Podcast Series. Today's program, explaining the potential and pitfalls of digital ag, digs into the short and long-term outlook for Precision Farming's transformation to a data-driven industry. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make an effort to get it added. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get alerts when upcoming episodes in this series are released. I also encourage you to mark your calendars and plan to attend the upcoming Dealership Mind Summit, July 24th and 25th in Iowa City, Iowa. The theme of this dealer-only event is intelligence-driven marketing and will feature a mix of general sessions, panel presentations, and roundtable discussions. Space is limited, and you can visit dealershipmindsummit.com for more information and updates. Well, the last few years have seen some dramatic shifts in the ag technology landscape, with companies adjusting objectives to accommodate farmers' spending habits. Increasing adoption of precision farming practices remains a priority within the industry, and as suppliers pivot toward the future, there are lessons to be learned from the past. To survive tight margin conditions, farmers and their dealers need to adopt and adapt, according to Kenneth Zuckerberg, former senior analyst for Rabobank. The most logical, attractive, and most likely to succeed option for crop farmers to pursue is adopting proven cost-reducing on-farm technologies that optimize input usage and produce greater yield per input dollar spent, he says. While the strategy can be confused with precision farming, the key here is investing thoughtfully based on selected data and technological tools that add value, says Ken, who is now Senior Vice President of Food and Agribusiness Industry Advisors with Wells Fargo. In today's Precision Farming Dealer podcast, Ken shares some research analysis on the learning and adoption curves for the next wave of digital farming innovation and how ready those in the industry are for it. I've said it before, this is maybe the first or the last multi-trillion dollar industry that has yet to fully embrace data and technology and automation. I never like doing speeches. I, I would much rather have a conversation. So my goal here is to address maybe five areas relatively quickly and then open it up for conversation and, and questions and thoughts and comments. Let me first say truly honored and humbled to be with you tonight. Anytime a New Yorker comes in to talk about farming, I'm always just thankful that people aren't escorting me out the door saying, what the hell do you know about my business? So thank you for listening. And with that, let's, let's take a look at the macro. So I'm a bad news, good news type of guy. There's always positives and negatives. Despite what's been a really peculiar year with the administrative change in Washington, look, the economic picture looks really bright. We have synchronized global growth. Central banks have done a very, very good job repressing financial volatility. Federal Reserve is continuing to pull back on asset purchases and reduce quantitative easing. GDP growth has been positive. It's accelerating. The new tax bill will add probably about 1% from what we think. The labor market is very healthy with low unemployment. And interest rates, while they will rise in 2018, we think it'll be very orderly. But as always, 
forward risks are present. The stock market continues to hit new highs. I think even today we had at least two of the major indexes hitting new highs. Look, that could top out and pause at any time. And I think that as long as the market goes up, you know, Washington's sins will be overlooked. But when it doesn't, that changes things. Asset unwinding by other central banks, that could be a little bit sloppy. Earlier this morning when I drove to the airport, I heard that a Chinese banking authority had to revisit one of the estimates that they put out, that their actual growth rate was much lower than that which they stated a few months ago. Imagine that, China not telling the truth about growth. Beyond that, we have the nuclear threat from North Korea and Iran. We have some challenges in the rural economy just from a farming standpoint and, and just a natural unfortunate decline as urbanization has been a trend. NAFTA and trade uncertainties persist and rising oil prices coupled with that strong labor market, that's actually something negative for margins. And these comments again are, are geared towards all businesses. So now thinking about technology and disruption and why should we care, I think it's always very important to distinguish, are things changing or have they changed? Things have changed. What I tried to do on this table was talk about all the different sectors and mostly outside of ag here again to frame the picture and think about how technology has changed our lives. So blockchain, Bitcoin, that's impacted banking, online banking, another negative for the brick and mortar. I won't go through all these, but many years ago, a very smart geek went to Harvard, dropped out, created a, a small company called Microsoft. That replayed itself about 10 years ago. And another one dropped out and created Facebook, one of the world's most valuable companies now. Think about what Facebook has done and Google and LinkedIn and Twitter just in terms of our consumption of news. Of course, in energy, we've had advances, which I think are very positive with solar wind, battery power, electronic vehicles, that's the next frontier. Uber and Lyft. Who would have thought it would be a great idea to reinvent the taxi industry, right? In New York, it used to be a million dollars per medallion per taxi. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, came this idea of bringing technology to democratize ride sharing. Amazing. So main takeaway here is that technology has changed and is changing, continues to change virtually every economic sector. So. I thought about the experience with the iPhone and I wanted to just do a quick case study because I think this is truly amazing and there's a lot of takeaways from this before we get into farming. I promise I'll be quick, but I think, it, I think it's interesting. So when the iPhone 1 came out and I think we're just at 10 years, so think about this. We have iPhones and smartphones. I think virtually everyone has it. We are using it in ways that we never even thought about 15 years ago. And think about what that one device has replaced. I don't need an alarm clock anymore, a separate one. I don't need a camera. I don't need a calculator. We don't need DVDs. We can stream music. We don't need a flashlight. Who would have thought? Board games, dictionaries, yellow pages, photo albums, book magazines. It's amazing. It truly is amazing. And when you step back and you think about it, no one wanted to pay 600 bucks when it came out, so it was subsidized. But think about all those devices that it's replaced. Maybe this new iPhone at, at $1,000 actually makes sense. It's interesting. So just, you know, food for thought, thinking about things changing. 
now into sort of the situation of linking farming and technology and and some ideas i think for you know this group so at rabo we have a group uh, a few partners of mine in st louis the real ag guys and gals brilliant folk a lot of ag economists and i'm responsible for the farm inputs coverage at rabo but the work i do works with them in terms of modeling out farm income farm economics at the end of the day in a way i don't care about commodity prices i don't think we should focus on that we should think about margins it's all about what is the margin so you know before i started looking at ag and that came from looking at the equipment companies about 12 years ago i was amazed thinking about the average price of corn between i don't know 1970 and 19 and the financial crisis it was something crazy like the average was $2.34 a bushel or 250 so after the financial crisis seeing the run up in corn I kind of felt it wasn't sustainable because I didn't trust China in terms of being the bid, the buyer for everything, plus the ethanol I thought might be a little bit seasonal and volatile over time. So that has come back, but the important thing here, as you can see, is the system has not come down as much in terms of input costs to where farmers, and this is row crop farmers, corn in particular, can make a decent amount of money. So the good and bad news is, bad news is three to four years of negative earnings for most of the average row crop farmers out there. The good news is the intermediate outlook is for positive margin, but it's only slightly positive. And we forecast the median Midwest corn farmer margin of about 4% for the next four or five years. 4% is unacceptable. I mean, if you sold the farm and bought a combination of 50% bonds, 50% stocks, your yield would probably be more than 4%. So what we've been talking about with the Rabobank Agrifinance grower client is if there was ever a time to evolve, it's now. You have to, you don't have a choice. Beyond the low growth, low returns, beyond this new normal of lower, structurally lower commodity prices, something is very different with the food system now. Food industry used to advertise and push products. Now consumers pull products. We talked about at our table a little bit, organic versus non-GMO, et cetera. Yes, there's premiums being paid for those, but more importantly, the consumer is forcing change. So the options that we're recommending to our grower clients, there's three of them that are sort of nuts and bolts, and then the fourth one comes the technology. The first is horizontal integration, that's merging like for like with another farm, economies of scale, spread your costs over a larger amount of acres. Another idea that I learned from a colleague covering the chicken sector, the poultry sector, is contract farming. If you can reduce some of that offtake risk through a contracted arrangement, and have somebody else share some of these capital intensive costs, equipment and others, that's a way to survive. Another idea for the corn and uh, soybean farmers or vertical integration. When I started looking at ag, I was amazed that growers can pay retail for inputs, but they have to sell their grain wholesale. It doesn't compute to me. It just makes no sense. So the idea of vertical integration is to take back the economics through grain merchandising, through more on-farm storage, through marketing and being very clever about marketing merchandise. But aside from that, 
the call to action is for growers to adopt and adapt new technologies. And I think that brings us to the topic of the evening. So ag technology, ag innovation, the digitalization of agriculture. It's funny, ag innovation has been going on, I think since the beginning of time. <laughs> Every stage of societal evolution has involved something to do with agricultural innovation and the development of civilization. In the report that Mike kindly mentioned, I think about it in terms of four waves. The first wave was mechanization, which you know started in the 1700s, 1800s, you know, came to the 1940s. I was amazed in doing the research that, I mean, the gas powered tractor was really innovative. Think about that. Then we had chemicals. The, the next wave was chemicals and fertilizers post-World War II. Then we had the precision farming movement, which again is not brand new. The, the green evolu uh, revolution and precision has been going on for the past three, four, five decades. But then you had the seed science that really created a step function improvement in yield. And when I've studied this chart, and this is U.S. corn grain yield trends since I think 1866, the exact years are not important as much as seeing the step function increase in yield that has happened since the 40s and 50s. And our view is that that pickup is in the rear view mirror. That's the bad news. The good news is that, remember I told you I'm sort of a good news, bad news kind of guy. I throw it out there quite a bit. The good news is that the digitalization of agriculture, and I define that by saying automating those precision farming tools, technologies, and farming practices can add tremendous value. So past innovations are all those things I mentioned, and the list is not complete, but I uh, put sensors and guidance systems as being past innovations that are still current, but they, thank God, have been in the business of farming now for something like, what, 20 years, 15, 20 years. But marry that and overlay it with the emerging technologies, which I'm happy to talk about in the Q&A, robots, algorithms, autonomous equipment, the Internet of Things, which are smart, connected devices, data, predictive analytics, AI, and machine learning. These are all the things that you hear so much about in this category called ag technology. And the thinking is, take the past innovations, merge it with emerging technologies, all the, you know, the genius that's behind that Apple iPhone case study I did, and then the value there is higher risk-adjusted returns on invested capital. So why hasn't it happened yet? <laughs> so there's been a lot of talk and a lot of money. Seven billion is still a lot of money, even if the industry is, is in the trillions. So why hasn't it happened? Well, there's not a connected ecosystem yet. There's not a elegant one or two operating systems that products can dial into. There's many of them. So that's one of the reasons. Another reason is even as simple as I tried to make it here, this is complicated. And good luck trying to explain this to somebody outside when they're working in the field trying to produce a crop there's been a disconnect. There's been too much in the way of mainstream concepts and not enough in the way of education. So the way I think about the opportunities for dealers is, if you'll permit me to, I'd like to just simplify what we're talking about into four core activities. 
data management, interpretation and analytics, prescriptions, and precision applications. Collecting data does not necessarily mean that there's a business model there. The jury's out. I think I know the answer, but the jury is out on Climate Corp and Monsanto. The jury's out on DuPont's acquisition of Granular. Just collecting big data, who said that was a great idea and why should that add value? It's the interpretation and the analytics of that data that can actually help solve real problems that I think is exciting. Now, we move over to prescriptions and you know I can't tell you I know that much about the agronomic side of farming. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at putting puzzle pieces together and then interpreting it. But the way it was described to me by somebody really smart who is an Iowa farmer, 10,000 or so acres, corn, soybean, you know, you can have a, a terrific formula. And then if your X factor is weather volatility, then all those other interim steps don't mean that much if the X factor is too big. So I think we still have work to do on cracking the code on prescriptions. However, precision applications seem to be where there's a natural value creating opportunity for this group. A lot of folks have talked about it in, in some of the previous discussions today. But how do you get there? So the, the call to action and the opportunity that I would tell you about, it starts with a story and then it's an elegant conclusion, then we'll go right to Q&A. So I bought my first computer, something, at home in 1992 shows my age because that was before the internet. We had something called Prodigy. That was the only way to interact with people in the in the ethosphere. And you know, this guy Sergey, who was in my apartment building, he sold it to me for four thousand bucks. It was a bunch of clones. And you know what? I'm a pretty smart guy, but I needed to be taught how how to print and how to fax from the computer. That was disruptive at the time. Faxing from the computer. Can you imagine? Who even uses a fax machine now? And then he taught me how to back up my data and store it and then put it on a tape. And then the big thing was the floppy disks went to three and a half. And then from there, I can't even remember, but it just all of a sudden, like within five years, we had, P then I was buying from Dell and I could just set it up by myself and, you know, had a thumbnail drive and a backup and a CD-ROM and be able to load movies and music. But in that five or six year period, it was fascinating because almost everyone else I knew had to get taught. And I'm talking college grads and I'm talking about, you know, people of all ages across the spectrum. So I think sometimes we forget that we all needed instruction on how to use something. Do you think Apple would have been half as successful if they didn't have the Apple store with the Genius Bar to teach my mother-in-law how to program her iPhone? No way. I think what's missing is the Geek Squad of agriculture, a geek squad for farmers. And this is, it, this intersects with a lot of what I've heard this community talking about, where you have an ability to create a center of excellence in knowledge, but then teaching and applying that knowledge. Uh, I was talking to a gentleman earlier today about, you know, he's a quote unquote equipment mechanic, but he's really more of a equipment mechanic, electrical engineer plus civilian data scientists. That's where it's heading. That's interesting. That's a pretty cool 
story also when you think about bringing back talent, expertise, and modern innovation back to the farming industry. So I put together some tactical ideas and recommendations. None of this is rocket science, if you will, but it's all about you know, hiring data scientists, evaluate the technologies, rank those most important tools, continue having forums like this and dialogues like this, host lunch and learns with clients, do demos, get more people involved. I know my new friend that Deer doesn't want to hear this, but Deer and Adco and CNH have to all work together because nobody's going to win if there's, if there's 27 different operating systems and there's no way to connect. It's got to default to open. Let me just leave you with this this thought and then go right to questions and answers. Years ago in 1990, I worked for a company called Insurance Services Office. It was a rate bureau turned consulting firm that hired actuaries to analyze insurance loss information. And those actuaries looked at every line of business, auto, home, boiler machinery, environmental. There were something like 28 or 30 lines of business. It came about because the industry AIG, Chubb, Travelers, Hartford, they all put in money because they realized they couldn't do that alone. That's what this industry needs. That's what we have to do to basically level set and establish standards and processes and open architecture. So the reality is, I think it's in front of us. I think there's other industries that have done this, this insurance services example. Today, ISO is a publicly traded company. They're a risk management company. They're for-profit. They're New York Exchange listed, and they're maybe worth $20 billion. So there's a precedent for this. So with that, I would say the call to action is, if there was ever a time to embrace this and act, it would be now. Thank you very much. Would be delighted to take questions. Very, very good information. So on your last slide, the tactical recommendations, you talk about educating, which I agree with, but is the generational gap so wide that instead of trying to, I guess, show your grandmother, is this a case where you actually do things for, for the farmers when it comes to precision technology because there's just too much to take in. I mean, they have so many things that they have to learn and do. Is this a bridge too far? So I don't think there's a bridge too far when it comes to money. My mom and dad lived through the depression. Boy, did they know money and saving. And what I'm always impressed with farmers that I meet is that they're very similar to Fortune 500 CEOs. They trust about five people, if that, right? The dynamic is that it's a family business in many cases, and family businesses are crazy. It's hard to operate a family business. So the answer, the scientific answer to your question is, it depends, okay? So I think sitting down with that client I mentioned in Iowa, his dad is 83 and he still farms, and he hates the way his son, the genius, farms. <laughs> um, and he's the guy that knows technology. So that gentleman, when we sit down and talk about ROI, the issue is just explaining the cost benefit and the time to learn, and I'm intrigued. I think there's other folks that tech can be very scary, and I totally get that. And none of us like to do things new and different unless 
you know, we, we have the time and, and it's often not the case. So I think it's a case by case situation. However, what I understand and what I read is that the average age of the U.S. farmer is not going down. It continues to rise 60 and above. This is also a tough business. This is also a, has been a low margin business. So if one would think about, again, was there ever a time to address succession planning? That would be now. The guy that runs Robo AgriFinance in St. Louis, his dad is 72, and he says he's going to farm for two more years, and if it doesn't get better, he's going to quit. So the CEO, Kurt, said, what are you waiting two more years for? There's a much better way to address the transition issue and then use that simultaneously as an education and an advice tool. I hope I didn't dance around that, but I think there is tremendous opportunities, and I think it's, it's great opportunities for good advice, but every case is different. Someone mentioned earlier that they don't focus on selling, they focus on gaining trust and helping the grower make the decisions that they need to make. I think that philosophy here is, I think there's an intersection. You mentioned the X factor, like if it, if it doesn't rain, does any of this matter? I'd like to get your thoughts on that. I've, I've asked this of other people and it seems you get different answers from everyone. No, I, I, when I think about operating a business where you have control of so many things, but the things that you don't have control of can up, turn your business upside down, it's quite scary. So look, I think with respect to water and processes, you know, climate change is happening. We had three hurricanes that totaled 50 to 75 billion per hurricane and economic damage. There's big things happening here. So I think addressing, you know, water and addressing nutrients to lower risk, these are all very important. I think that figures into this. I think what's ironic is, you know, the debate about genetically modified seeds and, you know, whether that in itself is good or bad. The reality is we have to do a much better job with allocation of water, which is a very scarce resource. So I really think that has to figure into this as well. So would you suggest that ag lenders in the future will look at farms differently if they are more heavily integrated in precision technology and take that into account when they make lending decisions? Yes. And let me tell you a few initiatives that we've talked about internally at Rabo. So first, back to the water issue, somebody connected to the world of IoT had said to me, what do you think would happen if a community in Arizona ran out of water or didn't have access to fresh water for a month? What kind of unrest do you think would happen in the United States? So that got me thinking and worrying, and I guess for a living, I sort of worry for a living. How can we loan on any piece of farmland without understanding <laughs> the risk of a given region of the United States not having a one-year drought, but a multi-year drought and all the effects. So that prompted an internal discussion. I feel like with the Dutch, I work for a Dutch bank, you have to sort of have a two by four, wake them up and then bring it back down to reality. So I think in order of magnitude, we have to create better tools to value land and the variability of resources that support farming, water included, and of course, nutrient health and uh, you know the soil health. So those are two things. 
then with that, I think that the opportunity is to risk adjust farms that may have weaker soil conditions, more erosion, but then be able to lend at a much better rate to systems that are more integrated, more regenerative is the word I've been using a lot. So I think there's tremendous opportunity for us as you know a lender. So then you might say, okay, so Robbo, can you lead this effort? So we want to, and I've been talking a lot, but I think it's bigger than us. I think it has to be, again, going to a consortium where we probably finance and ag needs to set up a, I hate to use the word trade group. There's some great trade groups, but I hate bureaucracy. I think there needs to be a working action group that helps bring these issues front and center. But I think there's a tremendous opportunity to risk adjust loans based on adoption of precision tools, technology, and of course, conservation related farming. You said there's 6.8 billion in VC money out there. It's kind of a two part question. One, have they seen much of a return on it in the data analytics side? And two, where do you see that data analytics going? Because at some point they're gonna want their money back, right? Just to be clear, perfectly clear, uh, it's probably north of seven billion, and it's food and ag tech, and the data piece is a much smaller piece of that. Although the machine piece is getting bigger, it's funny, right? Climate Corp sold to Monsanto for nine hundred sixty-four million, so those guys got an exit. But I wasn't thrilled with the business model, and plus. Google Ventures exited the business. Anybody that knows Google knows that they don't sell businesses that are going to be billion dollar businesses. So it was kind of a tell. So it's funny how you look at it. They got out, but does Monsanto monetize that at a multiple? I'm not sure. Granular, granular sold to Dow DuPont. So that was a successful exit for them. But do we ever hear about granular again? I think granular and Encirca is now a precision business, and hopefully they'll put the pieces together and, and add value. So those exits, it's kind of funny, those exits have happened. Farmer's Edge, I know they're a sponsor. They've had some you know, step-ups, and they've had some new investors come in. There have been some, but none have been at the level of value creation as, let's say, a Facebook. Point of information, the first 10 million in Facebook at the time of the IPO, which was roughly $40, that 10 million was worth $2 billion. I think Facebook is 180 a share now, so think about that multiplier there. I have not seen anything in data analytics that is even remotely close. And I'm not certain that venture capital investing in ag tech is such a great idea. Standalone venture. The Strategics, the Syngentas, the Monsantos, the Wilbur Ellis, the Cargills, people that know the business that had dedicated funds, I think it makes a tremendous amount of sense because you learn, you get access, and you can marry the science you know into it. So I think I gave you a much longer answer than you wanted. The reality is that there have been a couple exits that no one else will have the opportunity to get, or very few of us, and 
that being said, there is still a case for others. I just haven't seen anything approach the the real Facebook, you know, 20 bagger or what have you yet. We have another one over here. Sure. I'm a farmer, so it affects me a little bit. But what do you think as a as a major lender in the world today? How are qualified supply chains going to affect your ability to lend to somebody? Not only that, but access to capital for people that are not inside of qualified supply chains. Because if Walmart and Costco and all these people say, we're only going to buy, I don't care if it's free range chickens or what it is, how, how are you dealing with that today? And how do you look like you're going to deal with it five years from now? So the good news is I'm in the part of the value chain that no one else wanted, and I'm protected from that, uh, having to answer the question now. <laughs> so that's, that's, again, good news, bad news. What I really think, what, what do I think if I just put on the, the thinking cap for a minute? Look, I think Amazon and Whole Foods is fascinating on many levels, but I was one of these people that said, it's still a supermarket, right? And the margins are pretty low, and who wants to run a supermarket, for God's sakes? However, the amount of data gathered for affluent people, there's a relationship between if you're going to spend $6 for an organic beet and the type of clothes you're buying, I bet you Amazon will figure that out. So if I take them out of that and don't confuse Amazon's genius with what the Walmart and the Costco would do, look, I think there's disruption there. I just haven't studied it. But if a Costco or a Walmart require, again, specific attributes in the animal protein that they're going to source, then of course you have to understand the grains that are being used to feed these animals. So that goes another layer. So I think there's a investment idea somewhere there that intersects with smart connected devices, supply chain, and you know, sort of transparency. Well, thank you, Ken, for sharing your analysis and outlook for progressive precision farming technology tools of the future. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program. So feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this series in iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest precision farming news impacting your dealership by registering online for our free daily email update. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at PFD Editors and on our Precision Farming Dealer Facebook page. Finally, another invite to join us at the upcoming Dealership Mind Summit, July 24th and 25th in Iowa City, Iowa. The theme of this dealer-only event is intelligence-driven marketing and will feature a mix of general sessions, panel presentations, and roundtable discussions. Space is limited, and you can visit dealershipmindsummit.com for more information and program updates. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on June 20th for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series and look for continuing coverage of our third Precision Farming Dealer Summit throughout the year. For Ken Zuckerberg and our entire staff here with Precision Farming Dealer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.